September the 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 left LaGuardia Airport in New York City. Maybe you're uh, familiar with this. And as soon as it took off, it hit a flock of geese, and the engines cut off as a result. Um, There was every reason to believe that this plane would crash with the loss of everyone on board, including many in the city, because the plane would have come down on top of people in the city. But remarkably, a a captain, the captain of this flight, Chelsea Sullenberger, affectionately known as Sully, um, he, he landed the plane on the Hudson River, saving many lives, and no one was killed. In fact, Sully... Uh, had no time to consult a manual. He had no time to, to seek counsel, to seek advice on how he should land this plane. The question is, what was behind, what enabled him to pull off this landing? Well, it was years of experience. That was what enabled him to pull this off. In the moment of crisis, the habits learned over many years kicked in, and he was able to land the plane safely. You know, participation in the communion meal, the the Lord's Supper, is habit-forming. You realize that? As we participate in the Lord's Supper every month, uh, we're learning the habits of the gospel life, a life that is lived out in light of the fact that we have had our sins forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because of his work for us, his living the life before God in our place as our substitute, his dying on the cross to pay for our sins, his being raised from the grave for our justification. Because of his achievement for us, we have the forgiveness of sins and we have a new identity. It's the gospel life. And communion helps us develop habits of this gospel life. We usually call this farewell feast um, that we read about in Luke 22, the Last Supper, because it's the last time that Jesus would have this Passover meal with his disciples. But it was also the first time that Jesus would celebrate communion with his disciples. And so in a real sense, the Last Supper is also the first supper, the first supper of the new salvation that Jesus Christ has achieved for us through his cross and resurrection. Now, last time we saw that a plot has been devised towards Jesus to put him to death. There are three parties involved. you got the religious leaders, you have Judas, and then you have the devil. So you have three parties involved to have Jesus put to death. It's a plot. But we also saw that there's a counterplot that is also being put in place. So you have the seed of the serpent who plans to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And this Passover meal points to that. In fact, Jesus tells Peter and John to go prepare for the meal. And here they are. It's now the sun is set. It's the 15th of Nisan on a Thursday night. And we see the observance of the Passover meal. It's the night before Jesus' death. It's the most important week in the history of the world. Look with me in verse 14. It says, and when the hour came. Now, that's interesting uh, because the New Testament makes much of this idea of the hour. It kind of tells us that 
This is taking place at the exact time God planned for it to take place. It reminds me of Galatians where it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. But you see this idea of the hour even in John's account. In John 13, for instance, John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And then if you look over in John Chapter 17, as he's about to pray his high priestly prayer, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then he goes on and says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, which is interesting language. Now, in verse 14... He's referring in particular to the Passover meal. He's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to Fisherville Church in the 21st century. But I think there's something more here as well. I believe the hour that it's speaking to is not only the Passover meal, but to what the Passover meal is going to point to. The fact that his mission is being accomplished and will be accomplished in the next few days. And as this hour comes, notice what it says. He reclines at table and the apostles recline with him. Now, this is quite interesting. Um, Here's a man uh, who is about to die and he's reclining at a table with his disciples. Now, you may be familiar with the painting of Leonardo da Vinci. It's a beautiful painting of the Lord's Supper in the 16th century. It's a glorious painting, a very famous painting. Um, But there's one problem with that painting, all right? In the painting, they're all sitting at the table. And here, Jesus is reclining with his disciples. You go, what's the big deal about that? Well, to recline at the table speaks to freedom. It speaks to the fact a freedom has been achieved a freedom from some kind of enslavement. Remember, the Passover meal was first instituted all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. And notice um, that in that particular account, the night the first Passover um, was achieved as God delivered His people out of bondage to Egypt. Notice the language in Exodus 12, 11. It says, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So you have this idea of readiness. You're going to eat this Passover meal in haste because you're going to have to to move quickly. And now they're observing the Passover by reclining. It's completely different language. Why is that? Because the Passover has been achieved. And so to sit at the table or to recline at the table points back to the fact that Israel has experienced the exodus. They have been redeemed out of Egyptian bondage. But not only does it look back, I think more importantly, it points forward to the true freedom that's going to be achieved 
by the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, in the next few days. And so this is very important language, I think. That's why this matters. Of course, if this is the case, this reclining is prophetic. He's reclining at his table with his disciples and it's pointing forward to this freedom that's going to be achieved. Now notice in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knows that this meal has been observed for 1,470 years. Uh, Most conservative estimates are that Moses delivered Egypt out of slavery around 1440 B.C. And this is very likely uh, 30 A.D., around that time. So for some 1,470 years, Israel has observed the Passover meal on the 15th of Nisan which kicked off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus desires to have this uh, dinner with them because he understands as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the true substitute, as the true Passover lamb, what this symbolizes. The Passover symbolizes the giving of his body, the giving of his blood. And he longs to explain this to his disciples the night before he's crucified. Because tomorrow it's going to get really dark. It's going to be a bloody massacre. And he wants to explain to them this is all in the plan of God. Now I think this is remarkable in itself. I mean when you consider that he knows that reclining at that table with him is Judas. Do you think he knew what Judas was going to do? Well, we already know that he knows that. John chapter 6, early on in Jesus' ministry, he has called the disciples. He prayed all night before he called them. Luke tells us that in chapter 5. And then he calls Judas, who he says is a devil. He is calling the man that he knows will betray him. And so reclining at this table is a man who's already put this plan in, in place, this in process to... to Betray his Messiah, his friend, his Savior, Jesus, or his professed Savior, that is. Jesus also knows that at that table is Peter, who's going to deny him three times that night. He's reclining with Peter. He also knows, very likely, as Matthew 27 tells us and Mark tells us, that all 12 of them are going to forsake him. They're all going to abandon him that night um, as he is arrested. And yet here it says he longs, he desires. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. This is the kind of love that is beyond our imagination as sinful humans. When you know someone has hurt you, do you long to commune with them? Do you earnestly desire to commune with them? I don't. I have a desire to cut off Malchus's ear. With the sword, just as Peter did later on that night. Do you long for that? And yet Jesus longs for this. I mean, this we, we've never been betrayed. We've never been denied. We've never been forsaken by the kind of betrayal and forsakenness that Jesus is going to experience from his very best friends that very night. And yet we can only 
dream about the kind of love this man had. No one has ever loved more than Jesus. He is the very expression of love. And we can't even envision as we commune at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ himself that he loves us with that same love. The kind of love that Jesus has for us is beyond imagination. We see it something here. Now notice in verse 16 he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You may have a little post note in your, in your Bible. In the NAS, it actually says, I will not eat it again. Uh, the NIV also says that. I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I don't think the ESV here is clear at all. In fact, some manuscripts actually have that word again in the, tra- or in the, in the wording. What he's implying here is, is I will not eat this Passover again, all right? After I eat it tonight until uh, the kingdom of God, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's not talking about this meal, all right? He earnestly longs, he earnestly desires to eat this meal with his disciples. But after he eats it tonight... He will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, what is he referring to there? He's talking about what the Passover meal points to. And what does it point to? How is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled by the kingdom of God. Now, we know the kingdom of God is ushered in. It erupts into the present age through the finished work of Jesus. But he's referring to the future kingdom when he comes and he consummates everything and every foe is vanquished and Christ is deemed Lord indeed of a new heaven and new earth over a kingdom of priests who worship him in spirit and in truth where every sin, every sorrow, every sadness and and even the sentence of death itself is placed underneath the feet of Jesus. That's what he's referring to. And so he longs to eat this meal because he will not eat it again until that day comes. And what he's showing us here is his conviction that death is not the final word. They're going to think that. And we know they think that because we have Luke 24 to prove that. When Jesus is utterly shamed on the cross the next day, and he's put to death and he's buried in a borrowed tomb, they're going to believe death is the final word. Just like we believe when we go through a storm, when we go through a dark time, that this is the final word on something. And they're going to believe that as well. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not the final word. He's anticipating a renewal of fellowship in the day of the kingdom of God. It's what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 9. It's a picture of feasting. It's a picture of joy. It's a picture of of true and unencumbered uh, communion with the living Christ. Do you realize that's our hope? That is our hope. Our hope is not that our circumstances in this life get better. Because even if they do, one day we're going to die. Our hope is not in a promotion. Our hope is not in a new relationship. Our hope is not in having kids if we don't have kids. Our hope is in this future marriage supper, this future feast of unencumbered communion with the living Christ. He is 
our hope. And he is speaking to this hope. And the ground of this hope is bound up in what these elements at the Passover represent. And we begin to see these elements, in fact, in verse 17. Notice it says, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So he's distributing the cup, okay? That's important because we're going to see another cup in just a moment. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He reiterates what he just said. Now, not to be confusing, but I want to teach you something a moment. In the Passover meal, the presider, the one who's presiding over the meal, traditionally had four cups. We don't read about the four cups here because this is just a summary account. It's not an exhaustive account. Luke has a point to make, okay? But in the Passover meal, there were four cups. And each one of these cups teaches us something about the nature of God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, uh, those four cups explain the promises of Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. We don't have time to go there, but you can look that up. Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7. The first cup that he would have distributed represents their rescue from Egypt. Okay, so he blesses it, and then he speaks to what this cup represents, rescue from Egypt. The second cup would have represented freedom from slavery, which is certainly uh, very similar to the first cup, but there is a nuance there. Freedom from slavery. The third cup would have represented redemption by God's divine power. And the fourth cup, which would have been observed at close to midnight, all right? Just before midnight, they would, have, they would have drank this fourth cup. It would have represented renewal of relationship with God, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant formula of the Old Testament. In fact, it's how the New Testament ends in Revelation 21 and 22. And they would have drank that fourth cup just before midnight at the end of the evening, and they would have sang Psalm 116 to Psalm 118. They would have sung those psalms as they reflected on God's redemption, God's salvation. All right? And so what you have here is this first cup, I believe, is, is what Jesus is now blessing the meal over, or blessing the cup. I believe it's the first cup which represented their rescue from Egypt. But then he comes to the third cup. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive narrative. I've had to to really glean from the scholars uh, on this the history of the Passover here. But the third cup uh, came at the point when the meal was near completion. And again, the third cup represents redemption by God's divine power. The presider, as he is about to give out the third cup, would have spoken from Deuteronomy chapter 26, which is a reiteration of the Exodus, okay? And he would have taken the elements of the meal, which was bread, bitter herbs, and a lamb, a sacrificed lamb. And he would have spoken to how each one of these elements represented something of their enslavement to Egypt, and their 
redemption, their exodus out of Egypt. For example, the presider of this meal, is he, he, would have, he would have taken the bread and he would have said, this is the bread of our affliction when our fathers ate it in the wilderness. That's what the bread would have represented. But as we're going to see, at that very point, Jesus is transforming the Passover meal. He's transforming it before our very eyes. Why? Because the Passover is being fulfilled before our very eyes. He is the one in whom the Passover points. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, He is the Passover lamb. And so before our very eyes, Jesus is transforming the meal. It's morphing into what we know as the Lord's Supper, the meal of communion, the Eucharist, if you will, the meal of thanksgiving. And that brings us to verses 19 and 20, the transformation of the Passover meal. This is remarkable language. Notice in verse 19, and he took bread. Now again, how did this bread, what did this bread represent? As I said, uh, the one, the presider of the meal would have held this bread and said, this is the bread of our affliction when our fathers ate in the wilderness. That's not what he says. He says something that has never been said in the history of the Passover meal. Verse 19. He took this bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, this is off the charts. This has never been said. This has never happened in the 1,470 years that the Passover meal has been celebrated. Can you imagine the bewilderment of the apostles? Can you imagine Judas Reclining there as he hears him bless this bread, break this bread, distribute this bread and say, this is my body. Now, let's clarify this. The body does, the bread does not become the body of Christ. Okay, this is not transubstantiation. This is a metaphor. When Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't have a doorknob on him. When he says, I'm a, I am the true vine, he doesn't have grapes growing off of him, does he? This is a metaphor. So when the communion service is observed, we're not actually breaking the body of Christ. We're not re-sacrificing him. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. He was saying, it is finished. All right? In fact, it's a perfect tense verb, which tells us it's happened And it has ongoing, permanent effects. What he is saying is this body represents, or this bread represents my body. Now notice, this is remarkable language, wonderful theology here in verse 9. He took this bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Don't lose sight of that. This is a picture of one who is giving himself 
as a substitute. We teach the kids on Wednesday night. And boy, doesn't it bless you to see these young men sitting on the front row like this listening. Future missionaries, future preachers right there. I just praise God for that. I hope they're doing that when they're 15 and 17 years old as well. But when we teach those kids about the body, we we teach them the gospels about substitution. That's one of the key words in the gospel, substitution. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is my body. This bread that I am breaking represents my body that is given for you. All right? It's the same word that's used in Mark where he says... The Son of Man did not come to serve or be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same word. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Same word. He gave himself for our sins. He says, This bread represents the fact that I am giving myself away as your substitute because you need a substitute. And notice he says, he said, for you who pair. If you were to spell this in English, it's H-Y-P-E-R. Who pair for you. This has the sense of substitution, vicarious substitution, where someone, a person, is doing something in the place of another. I'm giving myself for you. We go to... To Utah and we proclaim the gospel to the, the Mormon church. That's what they need to understand. They need a substitute. They don't need self-improvement. They don't need a better version of themselves. They need a substitute. They need a Messiah, a Savior who gives his body, his life away for sinners. In fact, this is Jesus' desire here is to show them in verse 19 as he is instituting the Lord's Supper before our very eyes. It's his desire that the church come to understand this and remember his substitution, his sacrificial substitution. Why? So that we can love him more. Notice he says, this do in remembrance of me. Now, don't lose sight of the history behind that statement. This is utterly radical. In Exodus chapter 12, again, let's go back to Exodus, the night the Passover took place for the first time. And you see some remarkable language. God tells Moses to institute the Passover meal that will be celebrated. In verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This do in remembrance of what I've done in delivering you from Egypt. That's what he's saying. And then if you look on in verse 25, and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. This is going to be binding. You shall say, is this the sacrifice? Or when the, your children say to you, what, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. By the way, the children were present in this service. Because it was God's intention that the parents be the primary instruments of teaching the gospel to their children. They didn't have 
children's church in Exodus 12. There was an expectation that the children were present. And as they observed these things, they did not understand. God knew they wouldn't understand, and that's still his plan. Because then it gives dad the responsibility to teach these things they don't understand about divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. And so Jesus is saying something radical. He is saying, yes, in Exodus 12, God said, do this in remembrance of what I have done for you. Now we are transforming, we are morphing this thing, do this in remembrance of me. Radical language. It's reverberating that Passover narrative that this feast was to be celebrated uh, by Israel in their future. And now he is saying, this is fulfilled in me. Yes, both the Passover meal and this new Lord's Supper are commemorating God's salvation through a substitute. And that brings us to verse 20 that even brings more clarity to this. Look in verse 20 as we finish up this text. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in verse 17, we already saw he took a cup and he distributed it. And so there's a cup that's already been distributed. And so it's very clear this is another cup, which is in keeping with the four cups that the Passover meal would have used. And then in verse 19, he's speaking of bread that he he blesses, he, he breaks, and then he distributes that bread. And now... Here's that cup, which is perhaps the third cup of the four. And he he speaks to uh, the covenant uh, that comes through his blood. Now, here's the question. In the Lord's Supper, you have a bread and you have a cup. You don't have two cups. What's happening? He's morphing it. The, The Passover meal is now becoming the Lord's Supper. The memorial meal. In fact, the verse 17, that cup that he speaks to, that he distributes, that's the last cup ever in the Passover meal. Why? Because he's the fulfillment. This is the last time uh, the Lord's Supper would ever be, or the Passover meal would ever be observed rightly. Jesus, beginning in verse 19, is instituting the Lord's Supper. That's what's happening. And so this cup is... With this cup, he's morphing. He's morphing the Passover meal into a new meal. That's important to understand. From the last supper of the old covenant to the first supper of the new covenant. In other words, as a result of his impending substitution, his sacrifice on the cross, there will be a new covenant made between God and believers. Okay? A new covenant that promises the forgiveness of sins and a changed heart where the law is written on the heart. And the basis of this is what? The blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood, his blood of the new covenant. And boy, do many moderns have a problem with that. Oh my goodness. You see it made fun of in the movies, in books, on television shows, 
For example, Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, probably the best-known atheist of our day, in his book, The God Delusion, here's what he writes. He says, I have described Jesus' death on the cross for sin, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its familiarity with which it has dulled our objectivity. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? That's the question that he raises. In other words... If you really consider the claims of Christianity, instead of being in reverent awe, you should be repulsed by those claims. The fact that God would have to torture His Son in order to forgive you of your sins. And that's the way many moderns think. All this talk about blood. Well, no matter how distasteful it may be to moderns, The Gospels, indeed the entire Bible, is interested in blood. Very interested in blood. And verse 20 is no exception. Think about this. The last night Jesus has with his disciples before he's going to be mutilated. And what is the discussion? It's about blood. It's about the blood of the new covenant. The twelve knew about the covenant. They knew about what we know as the old covenant because the Passover feast celebrated that old covenant with his people. Now, they didn't call it the old covenant. It's what we call it. It reminded them of how God delivered his people out of slavery and bound them to himself in covenant. And once the people were rescued, once the people were delivered, God made a covenant with them. Exodus 24. That's, Exodus 24 is very important. We won't turn there for time's sake. But it's where this covenant is ratified. In fact, after this new relationship is forged, here's what the people say in Exodus 24 in verse 3. All of the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And as they spoke these words... You had these dead animals laying around that had been sacrificed. Indeed, from Exodus, we learned that everything, virtually everything of significance is doused with blood. Everything. You know, Moses collects this blood from these sacrificed uh, lambs and goats and he puts them in a basin. And half of it he throws against the altar. And the other half he takes. And Exodus 24 tells us he throws it on the people. He throws the blood on the people. I mean, it is gory. It is utterly gory. The old covenant was launched in a sea of blood. There's no way getting around it. But here's the good news. It was messy. But that blood revealed that the old covenant was a covenant of grace. 
God knew that His people could never obey the law. God knew that His people could never obey the Ten Commandments. We get through the first commandment, we're already guilty. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We're already idolaters and broken and vile and stand judged before a holy God. And so he, he institutes this sacrificial system so that he can have relationship with his people. Why all the blood? Why all the gore? When a covenant is made? Because for God to welcome us into his family, there is a cost. Think about this. The God who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Don't overlook that. This God, as the Baptist Catechism teaches us, is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness. Which means He will not and cannot tolerate sin for one nanosecond. How can this God, who cannot tolerate sin one moment... Be our God and we His people. How can this God be united to sinners like us in love? How can He love us that way? There's only one way. If our sin is paid for. That's the only way. It's the only way God can be in relationship with sinners like us. Only if the cost of my sin is met. And debts must be paid in kind. That's what true justice is, right? Debts must be paid in kind. If I owe the bank $10,000, I can go down to the bank president and he's not going to receive a shoe shine in lieu of payment, right? He's just not. The debt has to be paid. And if we owe God a debt, then we have to pay the debt. And that's, bring, that's the place where the gospel comes in. Jesus Christ, the substitute, came to pay the debt. You're either going to pay the debt or you can allow the substitute to pay the debt. Now, how do you allow the substitute to pay the debt? You have to repent of your sins. You recognize in repentance that I deserve judgment. But Jesus Christ, the substitute, has taken the judgment. You know, Dawkins asked... If God wants to forgive, why not forgive? Just forgive. Why the need for payment? That's what Dawkins is asking. In saying this, he's expecting something from God that he does not even expect from himself. Let me explain. This week I read about a, a, a young lady who was just horribly murdered. Horrible murder. And her father said that his life was smashed in pieces. By that murder. And he said, since our daughter's death, we have experienced the blinding need for her killer to be caught and for punishment to be handed out. Punishment is how a just world operates, right? We all resonate with this father there. We recoil against evil. We desire justice. That's why the vigilante movies, which aren't true justice, they're a parody of justice, but that's why they're so popular. We always pull for the vigilante because we want justice. 
And this girl's father was crying out for a justice that Richard Dawkins would call repellent. Justice is repellent. And what the cross is teaching us, what the cross clearly teaches us is that God does not ignore the need for justice. Because at the cross you have the most perfect display of justice in the history of the world. To be forgiven, there's a cost. And the cost is paid by the Son. The price is the punishment of my sin. And the only suitable punishment is death. And Jesus pays that debt. And that's why the Bible (coughs) describes blood being shed. That's why the Bible is doused in blood. And in the cross, it's shed in our place. So that God can be just and a justifier for those who put their faith in Him. Indeed, at this meal, Jesus has been transforming it. But there's one other thing that is unique about how He observes this meal. Okay? It's very unique. When Jesus blessed the food, He held up the bread, yes, and He said, this is my body. Well, every Passover meal had bread. When he held up the cup, he said, this is the blood poured out for the new covenant. Well, every Passover meal had wine. But what seems to be missing here, and it's missing in all four Gospels, is the main course. What's the main course? Sacrifice lamb. We don't mention it. We don't see it mentioned. Very likely the disciples gathered that as he sent them away to prepare for the Passover. But we do not see the Passover lamb on the table. Why? Passover lamb's at the table. He's at the table. Jesus Christ is the main course. You remember years, centuries earlier, Isaac was on a sac- on, a, on an altar. We read this in Genesis centuries earlier. And Isaac knows he's the hope of the world. He's the seed of Abraham. And a dead seed does no one any hope or any good. So he asks his father, Father, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? That becomes the question of the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? And maybe the disciples were saying that night with John the Baptist when he first met his cousin, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the celebration of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is a beholding of the Lamb. That's what it is. And it's a, you could say, a a reenactment, a parable of what Jesus does for us in his cross. Shedding his blood that God may be just and save sinners. And through that observance, our gospel habits are strengthened. And as we approach the table this morning, if you are visiting,